capital of the world, where an army of criminals has taken over. There's never a cop around when you need one. But when this cop's around... One is all you need. But now, outnumbered and outgunned, even the toughest of cops could use a little help. and welcome to the season 4 premiere of Heroic Purgatory, an Asian cinema podcast. My name is John and with me as always is my co-host Jason. Jason, how are you doing today? I'm fine, John. How are you? Uh, I'm fine as well. So after a long delay, we're finally starting the fourth season of uh, Heroic Purgatory, uh, centered on female action heroes, or more accurately, action movies with female protagonists. And of course, the first movie of the season is none other than Police Story 3, uh, aka Super Cop, the cop that can be stopped. Just as we started our podcast with the Jackie Chan movie, I guess it is fitting that we start season four with another Jackie Chan movie co-starring uh, Michelle Yeoh. Uh, so Jason, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about the movie and maybe giving us a summary of the film itself? Four years after Police Story 2, released in 1988, we had Police Story 3, uh, which hit the screen in 1992. This was the first film in the franchise to not be directed by Jackie Chan, as Stanley Tong took the reins. It was the first film not to be entirely set in Hong Kong, as story locations included Thailand, Malaysia, and mainland China. And it was the first film to give Jackie Chan a co-star with equal billing, and uh, that co-star was Michelle Yeoh, making her return to the silver screen as an action heroine, after a brief retirement. It was also the last film to feature Maggie Chung as May, the love interest in the previous two films. So, the story for Police Story 3. Our super cop sees Jackie Chan's character, Chan Kakui, tasked with taking down a heroin trafficker named Chai Bat. To do this, he infiltrates the drug gang by busting one of Chai Bat's drug traffickers, a man named Panther, from a forced labor camp in mainland China. Chan has help from an Interpol agent named Yang Qianhua, played by Michelle Yeoh. She's a member of the Chinese military police, and she acts as his handler on their undercover mission where they pretend to be siblings and travel to Thailand, the source of the drugs, and Malaysia, where Chai Bat tries to save his wife from prison, and Chan's long-term girlfriend, Mei, played by Maggie Chung, gets kidnapped in the process. So, uh, in terms of the characters, we've got Jackie Chan as Chan Kakui, Michelle Yeoh as Yang Chien Hua, Maggie Chung as Mei, and uh, prolific Actor and martial artist and stunt choreographer Yunhua as Panther. And uh, as mentioned previously, Stanley Tong took over directing duties. And this was coming off the back of a hit movie called Stone Age Warriors, 
he would later direct Chan in um, Rumble in the Bronx, and I believe Free Story 4. And yeah, we've also got cinematography by Ardy Lam, who uh, lends the bullet in the head once upon a time in China, and uh, the Jackie Chan film Thunderbolt, and also the Anne Hui movie, The Stunt Woman, which stars Michelle Yeoh and tells the story of a woman entering the very macho world of Hong Kong stunts uh, and uh, films. Which is a, a very much a drama. Yeah, I haven't actually seen that. I've seen outtakes of it. Have you seen it? Uh, I, I tried to, to, to seek it out and uh, couldn't, find, couldn't find it. I actually, I, I did find it uh, last night, but I just didn't have time to, to watch it. Uh, it's got to be one we have to cover in the future because Anne Hui uh, is a major director in Hong Kong. Yes, so I did read about it and it seems to have been relatively a disappointment as a movie, though we can always just check it out and make it cover it nevertheless. Yeah, so uh, Police Story uh, 3 was released in 1992, and that was also the year that saw Hard Boiled, uh, Once Upon a Time in China 2, Full Contact, and uh, Naked Killer, and New Dragon Gate Inn, and the Jackie Chan movie Twin Dragons also released. Yeah, so you said you mentioned that uh, this was four years after the Police Story 2, and I was looking at what major movies Jackie Chan did since then, and it's not that many he did. Uh, Dragons Forever in uh, the same year as Police Story 2, but I, if I remember correctly, that's not a Jackie Chan starring movie. It's He's more of a cameo slash supporting character in that. Uh, he it's did, like an ensemble piece with the, the, the sort of like the, uh, the three dragons, Yun Biao, Samu Hung, and Jackie Chan. They're exactly. all given equal billing. Exactly. So, and he did Miracles, uh, uh, sort of a more of a drama action. Uh, which he also directed, and he has quoted as being the fam- the fa- his favorite directorial work. And then he did Armor of God 2 in 91, which he also directed, and then 92 Police Story. So it's not... He did not was not that busy. Uh, well, I mean, he was busy with, you know, various things, but in terms of major movies that he released, uh, it's not that many between Police Story 2 and Police Story 3. Uh, aka Super Cup. Uh, so I'm wondering, maybe there was a significant amount of effort put into Police Story 3 uh, in terms of production. Yeah, he was like 38 around the time of Police Story 3. Yeah. Which is, you know, for a well-maintained guy like Jackie Chan, is still pretty young. Yeah. Yeah, no, let's, say, let's start as we usually start. So why don't you tell us a little bit about... What's your history with this film? When did you first watch it? And what did you think of it the first time you saw it? And what did you think of it on uh, subsequent rewatches? So I, I've said on this podcast before that Police Story is a perfect film. And I think Police Story 3 is a, a close second. It it does lack the scenes of like outright comedy and spontaneity of the first two Police Story films, and uh, which are a little rough around the edges in filming and story um but it brings like higher production values and um like you can see it in the stunts which are just absolutely mind-boggling just like uh like gut-churningly uh terrifying watches and um they stick in the memory and they never get old like each time i, I rewatch uh police story 3 i'm just like amazed like the moving train sequence and the motorbikes and like hang- dangling from the helicopter above Kuala Lumpur. Uh, but yeah, rewatching it, I was, I was also struck by a great level of like technical quality and like how um, 
precise camera movement and actors blocking and shot selection and editing feels. It's just like a, and uh, more aware of like a greater scale to it than the previous films. So like, it feels like you're, tr um, transit or Jackie Chan's transitioning from like a local small production into like uh the global stage essentially and um yeah just this film is easy to rewatch and um i always enjoy it you did mention uh higher production values and i read i don't know if it was the first jackie chan movie or the first hong kong movie overall to not use adr but capture uh the recorded dialogue on the on the actual during the actual shooting right uh, so it's just definitely, I don't remember if that was the first Jackie Chan movie to do so or the first Hong Kong film to do so, but I think it was the first Hong Kong film to do so because it was very common practice in the 80s and before in Hong Kong cinema to use uh, for the actors to just kind of mumble their lines and then everything would be would be re-recorded in post-production. Sort of like um, like Giallo movies then. Yeah, that was camp. common in Italy as well. It was, there, was a, there was, a as I was doing research, there was a funny, a funny anecdote about... Uh, uh, Cynthia Rothrock, uh, when she mm. came to Hong Kong, uh, and uh, was very surprised by this fact, and was surprised by how quietly, quietly, uh, her co-stars would would uh, say their lines. That she would frequently like stop because she couldn't hear what the other people says, not realizing that it wasn't important uh, at the yeah. time. Yeah, her coming from America, of course. Yeah. Okay, so regarding my. Uh, my history with this film. I don't remember when the first uh, time I watched it, but I'm pretty sure it was on a Police Story marathon. So I had watched Police Story one, two, three, uh, and probably four as well. Uh, I I've never I was never able. We will talk about this later, but I was never able to watch the sequel to Super Cup, which does not star Jackie Chan. It should be said, it is a uh, it's purely a Michelle a Michelle Yeoh starring role, and I actually try to find that to watch it as part of this episode, but it was just not available in any, in any major distribution. I would have to get the physical DVD, which would have, uh, you know, I, <laughs> I did not want to do. Yeah. Uh, but, and like you said, I think this is not better than police story three, but it is better than police story two. I would say it is. I have always had a problem with Jackie Chan's nineties and beyond work because, and this is evident in Police Story 3, in Super Cup, although not to a greater degree, but Jackie Chan has always uh, centered his films around the stunts. It is well known that he comes up with the stunts first, and then he crafts a story around that. But in, in his best work from the 80s, and even the 70s to a certain degree, there actually there's some effort put into that story. And I've always said this, that I think Jackie Chan is, is very good at situational comedy, not just action comedy. And I it's kind of a shame that he didn't do more of that, and he could have carried on very well later in his career when he couldn't do action anymore. But he's very good at situational comedy. He's very good at other styles of comedy besides action comedy. And there was always an effort put into that. And there's always an effort put into the story. And it feels like they did away with that in the 90s. It feels like they realized people just watch them for the stunts, which I don't know if it's true, but maybe it is true internationally. No, yeah, Jackie Chan has talked a lot about his um, admiration for Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin and how they use props and sets um, to um, generate comedy, and there's a lot less of it in Police Story Three. Uh, and um, at like, I haven't watched beyond uh, Police Story Three as part uh, in terms of the franchise, but definitely there's a lot less of it in sort of like Mister Nice Guy and um, his other films set in different countries. 
Yeah, the '90s, like I said, they they do less. So that's why I've been less of a fan in the '90s. And I think Supercop is maybe sort of the start of that. It was a, ma- a massive production. Almost certainly, there was an eye for international distribution, and I think they realized that international audiences don't care for the story; they want to see the action, and they kind of they sort of carried on with that promise. And I think that's a shame because as great as the action is, you know, the, the story around something like project a or police story, or there's, you know, it's nothing extraordinary. It's often simple, but it is solid in its simplicity. And they kind of do away with that. And I've always been disappointed. I actually on the most recent rewatch, I was able to laugh a little bit more on the comedy outside the action so perhaps I, I think I've softened on the film a little bit, but it's still, I don't think it quite reaches uh, the same quality as his previous film. Where's the action, of course, it is certainly up to the same, to the same quality, maybe even better than some of his other films. And it's no surprise given the production. I was thinking after one other surprise that I, uh, I had when I rewatched it is I, I remembered Michelle Yeoh being more in it, but after re- a recent rewatch, it is clear that this is still a Jackie Chan film. It's really, I mean, you did say they have equal billing, billing, but as far as screen appearance and importance, I, I, I this is still a Jackie Chan film. Uh, Michelle Yeoh appears l- less, and I think a lot of people remember the final sort of half of the movie where, or like, especially the final action scene, which is, you know, of equal importance to Jackie, but in terms of you know, like the setup and the, especially the first half of the film, she's much, much less in it. And she's <laughs> the first, the first few scenes, she's mostly there as exposition, really. I, I see. Well, uh, just to go back to sort of like um, the 90s and Jackie Chan sort of like becoming blander in terms of like um, the comedy in his films. Like Project A has so many memorable moments, such as the bicycle chase through the narrow alleys and like how like, he has to overcome different obstacles and defeat bad guys with different props like ladders and so forth. And yeah, like uh, Police Story has that great moment in the station where he's at, trying to answer many telephones and um, also or trying the to court scene. Things. Yeah, like, and when people watch these films, I, like, I, I, and you talk to them, they do remember those scenes. And it, I agree, it is a shame that, um, like, his later films, his 90s work, don't include them. I think in terms of so so oh, just yeah, to, to interject and uh, add to your point, he he has made the point that he cannot do the same stunts as he grew oh uh, as he grew older, and he's kind of he's kind of put the hopes of his continuing career in drama. He's always said he wanted to do more drama, and then he wishes directors cast him in in dramatic roles as opposed to action roles and while I, I do think he has promise as a dramatic actor like the one particular film that i enjoyed from him was the shinjuku incident which i believe was released in 2009 where he has it was very little action especially from his part and he does a very good role there as a dramatic actor but i wish he had actually tried more uh comedy not action comedy, but just comedy and, and kind of relied on that a little bit more. And then he would be able to continue that as he grew older. And he has a uh, great capacity for it, like uh, Jacques Tati and so on. Yes. But I, yeah, like uh, in terms of him getting old, like I mentioned that he was 38 um, around the time this was released and Michelle Yeoh was in her 30s. And um, in terms of like equal billing, 
like as far, when, after watching this film, I felt like she had the more impressive stunts. Um, whether it's like riding the motorcycle onto a moving train or hanging onto the back of the van as it's speeding through Kuala Lumpur. And uh, like she has really great moments in all the other fights as well, where she's um, showing her martial arts and um, athleticity. Uh, athleticness? <laughs> anyway. Athletic uh, abilities, yeah. yeah athletic abilities and uh yeah she's like she proved her action chops before her retirement with um uh roles in like uh the in the line of um duty the first two movies in the in the line of duty franchise and uh like i was really impressed uh with her in this film yeah i tried to i tried to watch a few other uh uh michelle Yeoh movies and it seems to me i read this is not the first i mean I think action-wise, she's been impressive in most her mo- most of the movies that she's been in, and always looks like she from from you know the description of things uh, that she uh, always had a point to prove that she could do the action uh, herself. And, and strangely, she never got injured. She gave an interview actually around the time that Police Story came out, maybe later, a few years later, because it was released a few years later in the U.S., uh, that she's surprised at how she's never been injured or she's rarely been injured. Uh, however, I have to say, watching a few movies before this, uh, I think, and having watched them before, of course, this is not my first exposure to Michelle Yeoh's early movies, uh, she definitely is an actress that learned her craft along the way. I think her earlier movies, she's very awkward. She is a very awkward line delivery Occasionally, she definitely did not have much of a comedic time. In fact, if anything, I would say this is maybe her first successful comedy, uh, unless there's something that I'm missing. I always felt like in, in the movies before this, whenever she tried to do something comedically, she didn't really have great timing. Whereas I feel, I feel like Jackie Chan and perhaps Stanley Tong figured out that she works better in a comedy if she's the quote-unquote straight man. Yeah. Uh, and and that's definitely what she does here, and that's definitely what she's continued to do later in career. She's always played it straight, even in her most recent role, which she got a lot of attention. Um, everything, everywhere, all at once. She's still like the straight character. She doesn't she doesn't deliver the lines comedically. There's comedy happening around her, if you can call that comedy, of course. But that's a discussion for a different day. Uh, but she's always works best as the straight person, the person with a straight face, while others doing it and it's very evident in super cup jackie chan does all sort of goofy stuff around her and she just never never purses her lip she's there the serious uh general from the chinese army or the chinese police academy or whatever well she's uh got tremendous dry delivery when she's poking fun at him but we have to remember like uh she's like uh miss malaysia she came off the back of being a miss malaysia beauty uh pageant winner and ballerina, and, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, she uh, suffered an accident in school. She had to drop her ballet career and she moved into movies. And um, she's got this great quote, uh, like um, going into the gyms of Hong Kong movie world and um, the guys would uh, literally fold their arms, stand back and watch me. This little thing wants to do all this, but I followed them move for move. I was in that gym 8.30 a.m. until sundown every day. And, uh, like, she's definitely put the work in. And like you said, Stanley Tong and Jackie Chan uh, understand that, like, they can bounce off her 
being the straight man in this. Yeah, I do think I do think that they figured out. You know, she definitely she definitely had potential as an actress. I do think she's grown a lot as an actress. We did cover another movie by her, um, Ang Lee. Uh, why am I blanking on the name? Crouching Tiger. It didn't Crouching drag. Tiger, and she as a, her acting there is fantastic, but. Going from earlier in a career, like Yes, Madam, and uh, the Heroic Trio, and uh, what's another big one, uh, the Royal Warrior, it's it's night and day compared to where she started, to where she ended up. You know, all the way to pro- perhaps her most uh, greatest acting role, which is uh, Ang Lee's Crouching Tiger, uh, arguably her great one of her greatest performances in in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. It's a tremendous evolution in acting ability, and she worked hard. Like for some of the early roles, uh, her summer early, I think Yes, Madam may have been her first action, like proper action movie, and she's impressive. I honestly, having rewatched that recently, I, in terms of just the fighting, not the stuff, because she didn't do that much stunt work in that movie, but she did a little bit, and she did it herself as well. But there's not that much of a difference. So, so she she worked eight hours per day on the gym. Uh, like 84, 85, to be able to do the fighting and uh, a- and the stunt work herself, which is very impressive to someone like, unlike Jack- Jackie, who was essentially raised to do that stuff, as opposed to her, her learning it on the spot for X or Y movie. Yeah. And so, like, again, like, or some other, like, Cynthia Rothrock, who was also a... um trained martial artist and yeah she was a trained martial artist you know from an early age a surprisingly good actor for for someone who had who who had absolutely no experience but michelle just you know perhaps she had some some uh, training from her ballet but he, he fighting and performing stunts is a whole other game altogether uh in terms of like um more recent actors, I think Jason Statham is one who's got a background in maybe acrobatics, but he's been able to transition into sort of like um, martial arts movies. There isn't the same element of physical risk and pain, which is what makes the stunts so electric. That's, that's what makes Hong Kong movie stunts so electric. That's what everybody remembers. Like when, when a, a, a stunt goes wrong, like those clips uh, uh, go far and wide. Everybody's got a tale to tell about Hong Kong movies. Uh, but also Statham, I, th- I do think he had some experience in martial arts when he was younger. Uh, okay. He had some training in martial arts. I mean, it's, it's, it's still, it's... Not the same equivalent. Yeah, yeah, that's, I, I, guess, um, I guess that's my point. But uh, going back to Super Cup, why, uh, like... <laughs> They make, I don't know if you noticed, but Michelle's introduction is kind of ridiculous. They make such a big deal out of her being a woman in those early scenes. Uh, like even the introduction from behind, the camera angle, essentially looks like a man, uh, like a relatively slender man until they actually show her face and then cuts to Jackie Chan's uh, very, very emo- emotic- emotional surprise. Exaggerated surprise to what? Yeah, it's a vein of comedy that, like, uh, the film plays on, like, the difference between Jackie as a man and, um, or Chan as a man and, um, Yang as a woman. And, uh, like, there's not, not so much sexual tension, but just, um, 
cheeky uh, comedy mind from it. The, the one thing that surprised me, and perhaps you can give me your take on this, is if this was the early 80s, that seemed okay. But by now, Hong Kong audiences were very used to female action movies. And a lot of them were exploitative, no doubt. But, but this was not, I mean, this was the early 90s. Like, Michelle Yeoh was a star. There were other female stars that did action. Not, not as many as male stars, but it was not... I don't know that reaction watching it in the '90s, by being aware of the context that this film came out, was seemed to me unmerited. Not not that I have a problem with it, I don't, because it is it is a movie of its time. But it seemed to me that what what was what was the context that this that merited that reaction? It was audiences would have been familiar; they would have not surprised at all that Michelle Yeoh, who was a star on her own for for almost a decade at this point, a little less than a decade. Alongside many other female action stars who were fairly reasonably common in Hong Kong film, why why did it need that kind of introduction and that kind of a like emphasis on on her being a, a woman in that in those early scenes? Yeah, the girls of gun genre was firmly established by then because you had like Moon Lee and Yukari Oshima, Cynthia Rothrock uh, appearing in titles like uh, Yes Madam, Iron Angels one and two, Dreaming the Reality, Mission of Justice. And uh, I think perhaps this has something to do with Jackie Chan, who's uh, like, um, although he's not credited with the script, um, perhaps they wanted his character to like have sort some sort of tension. You can always assume that in any film, regardless of what role he is in any Hong Kong film, where he's a star, he's had his hand in pretty much every aspect of the production. Like Michelle Yeoh's commented on how Jackie Chan didn't believe. Like women could be good fighters until she kicked his butt. So I mean, perhaps there's that aspect of it, but there's also that um, sort of line of comedy within the film where it's kind of like playing up the differences between the genders. But I mean, like I said, was uh, Jackie Chan? I, I, we can believe. We can, of course, believe Jackie Chan. I mean, he's always uh, more, more revealed later than uh, more recently than perhaps at the time. But he's of course somewhat of a conservative guy when it comes to a lot of uh, a lot of social values but was he so out of touch with the rest of hong kong cinema that he you know like regardless of what he thought of the capability of female actresses he must have seen what's already out there right that's that's what surprised me so this is more of a surprise than a criticism i don't question jackie chan's own values regarding what women can and cannot do that's a different issue but just in the context of presenting it to an audience that would already be familiar with it. That's that's what, what I'm, surprises me the most. Yeah, I just took it as part of the comedy. Like, he's going to mainland China, he's going to meet someone high up in the military police organization, and his expectations are overturned because there's a woman. And she's constantly one-upping him in uh, each battle. And it's like a battle for supremacy between the two as they try to dominate each other. And it plays into the war between the genders, sort of comedy. Yeah, and I think I'm. I'm. A, this is again anecdotal, but from what I've read, there was a discussion of Michelle Yeoh having a stun double, and it was her insistence. And this is not the first time. I think this has happened in previous movies that she was in that uh, she do her all her own stunts. And I was not sure. I like it was. It's pretty clear that she does her own stunts in. Um, uh, in the movie, the only one that I wasn't sure about is the motorcycle on the train one. Uh, 
And that is because just the way it is shot, the way usually Jackie Chan likes to have as few cuts as possible. And that is the one place where that rule is sort of broken. There are perhaps one too many cuts in that and the, the angle, it's, it's, it's one that you cannot clearly see that it's Michelle in that. According to all accounts, it was her doing the stunt, uh, including her own, but it's just not as obvious as Jackie Chan movies like to be about who is the person that is doing the stunt. It's down to the difficulty. It must be down to the difficulty of the stunt because you see her coming off the top of the train and um, falling into like um, a pile of like uh, cardboard boxes, and um, it's one that she had to do multiple times. And she went on the I think it's a Rosie O'Donnell talk show. There's like a five minute clip on YouTube, and she talks about how difficult it was to actually ride the bike and to make it stop because. She, She's only like five foot four and um, she's not tall enough to touch the ground. And so she had to jump off the bike just as it was about to careen off the edge. So I, when you watch the outtakes and uh, you can see, like there's multiple attempts at doing this stunt, this very difficult stunt. And I can only assume that they just cut together the best bits of each one and then ended on her actually landing the stunt as well. Yeah. And I'm assuming the motion, the, the location of a, of, being on the train tracks at the motion of the chains made it impossible to have it in one or a few takes. I'm um, assuming it required multiple cameras to, to actually just to, to just physically be able to fit all that on a frame. Or yeah, this is this is like when you watch Super Cop Free. It's this stunt in particular that sticks in the mind that makes you think. Yeah, Michelle Yeoh has like in terms of fighting and stunts, she she hit Jackie Chan uh, in this film. You can see it in those uh, extra scenes at the end of the movie where it's a bunch of guys holding the motorcycle and she's revving it up and then they, ju they just let go and then the, they just again to sort of give the impression of, of not starting from the, that, that patch of hill of, uh, of dirt, but it has been going on for a while. Uh, speaking, speaking of the Rosie O'Donnell interview and all the other interviews that she's given around this time, you got to say her English is way better than Jackie's. Well, she uh, was actually raised in the UK. Wait. Well, was she raised in the UK? I was. I read she that was, she like she learned English at home in Malaysia, but then she went to um, the dance academy in uh, London. So, like, there's that. And she was relatively uh, upper class, an upper class uh, from an upper class family in Malaysia. Yeah, yeah. Jackie, I mean, Jackie's been doing American movies for like 30 years and he can't speak english to save his life i mean yeah, he, can, he also lived in australia as well yeah so i there's i i <laughs> with all due respect that like there's definitely ha had to have been one too many blows in the head uh preventing him from being able to properly but uh, uh but she is she was just phenomenal in uh in in her ability just as a personality i mean jackie speaks like talks whenever he gives interviews in english and I can only assume he's not the greatest public speaker, even when he gives interviews in, in Cantonese. But he's extremely, uh, I don't want to say uncharismatic, because he is charismatic on camera, regardless of the situation. But it's, it's kind of hard to follow what he's saying most of the time. He makes a lot of sound effects and a lot of hand motions whenever he does. He was actually, I saw an interview of him, a recent interview, describing how he may, how Supercop was saying, and he was moving all over the stage and making sound effects with his mouth and and with his hand and motions with his hand. Uh, yeah. The most unconventional public speaker that I've ever heard. Whereas she was, she's always been very, very composed and very 
much more elegant in her public appearances. I, I guess you could say it comes down to class. Like Maggie Chung also has that sort of um, elegance and precise way of speaking as well. And she's another Hong Kong actress who spent time in the UK and um, went to like uh, high class schools. Yes, yes. So yeah, uh, what else? There was something else that I wanted to to say, but yeah, that's uh, there. There, I mean, Jackie Chan also has a few a few really impressive and dangerous stunts in here, especially like like hanging from a helicopter. Yes, which is not the first time he's done it. I don't know if it's after this that he does it again or before this, but I feel like I've seen Jackie Chan hanging from a helicopter at least two or three more times. But have you seen him hanging from a helicopter? En route to planting him in uh, to the front of a moving steam train. Oh well, I, no, not really. I think I think maybe in Who Am I he does that or no. But it didn't end with him landing into a cart full of durian fruit. Yeah. Uh, but let's talk. Okay, so let's talk about you know. I mean, the action scenes are impressive. Let's talk about some of the silliness of the plot. The whole scene that bothered me the most is. Pretty much all the interactions with the crime lord, with the uh, Pao, what's his name? Chai Bat. Uh, no, the other one, the brother. Panther. The guy in the uh, prison camp at the start. Most interactions with him, with Jackie Chan, between him and Jackie Chan, between him, Jackie Chan, and Michelle Yeoh's characters when she's introduced, are, are almost ridiculous, especially their insistence to go visit, <coughs> excuse me, visit hometown. I mean, like I said, all Jackie Chan movies... Uh, all the all the plot of all Jackie Chan movies are primarily excuses for from getting from one stunt to the other or from point A to point B, but I feel like they did not try hard enough in this movie. Uh, perhaps it's making the most of being able to shoot in mainland China and also uh, getting comedy from uh, like that stereotype of Chinese bumpkins. and also allowing the uh, there's a recurring uh, character. Uh, played by Bill Tung, to dress up as a woman, which uh, harks back to the silliness of the first two police story films. Yeah, yeah. So, of course, that that scene in itself is is fine. It's funny enough. There's some comedy there. Uh, it's just getting there. Uh, oh, si- since you mentioned it, what do you think of the... This is 92, five years from the handover. What did you think of, of chi- the China's involvement in this film? It's Yeah, it's, it's kind of like whenever... Dictators have their parades and propaganda moments. They like showing off the military and uh, like guys cracking boards over their heads. And um, Jackie Chan does uh, poke fun at it. There's this great line where he's like, why would anybody stand there and just allow themselves to get hit? This is all stupid. (laughs) But then it allows the film to um, transition into a funny comedy moment where he has to fight the toughest guy at the military academy. And you see the different um, fighting styles, like Jackie Chan's very... Uh, street fight focus, which is all about tricks and flashy moves and um, trying to just uh, get the best of the opponent by misdirection. And um, whereas the Chinese uh, uh, guy who's like rock solid, like breaking boards over his head, he's all power and um, discipline. And it's a nice contrast between like how Hong Kong um, cops might fight and Chinese cops might fight. But it also gives you like an early... Yeah, it also gives you like an early taste of like Jackie Chan's sort of politics because he's kind of like, well, at some point we're all going to be one country, so we might as well work together. And like, the, again, this is another vein 
that the film taps into that you've got these two people coming from different um, aspects of Chinese culture and politics, and they're able to synthesize a successful uh, end to the case by combining the talents. Yeah, and it uh, should be noted that at, at this point in her life, uh, Michelle Yeoh barely spoke Mandarin. So that's why they have that scene where they, she briefly met, uh, says a few words in Mandarin, but then she says, let's just switch to Cantonese. Yeah, she's uh, of Hokkien descent, and um, she learned some Mandarin from a grandmother, but she mostly spoke English at home. And she said that um, one of her great regrets is not learning Mandarin. And as we discussed in um, uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, you know, uh, she had trouble sort of speaking um, ancient, uh, well, older Chinese dialects. And so, so when uh, people from mainland China watched the film, they were able, they, they, they were pointing that out. How the Hong Kong actors weren't speaking like uh, the same, and it was taking them out of the movie. What do you think? So going back to what we just talked, what do you think of the last line of the film, which is, uh, uh, which is again, uh, you said that Jackie Chan is poking fun at at uh, some of the Chinese uh, policemen. I'm not 100 percent sure. I think there's slightly a more positive outlook of 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 China overall, perhaps because of what you said that. You know, he recognized that it's time to work together. But do you, what do you think of the last line where he says, where she, Michelle Yeoh says, well, this money belongs to China. And Jackie says, well, let's, let's let Hong Kong safe keep it. And then in five years, you'll have it back. Yeah, that's him showing his politics, essentially. He's kind of like, like he's, again, you can say he's being realistic. Uh, like China's going to take over at some point. But there's a, definitely a positive spin to this. It's kind of like, yeah, we've worked together on this case. And uh, like eventually we're going to be, you know, it's not no longer, was it? One country, two systems. This, we're all in this together. We've, we had a season on the 90s. And of course, we're both familiar with Hong Kong cinema to various degrees. And you can, in, in both in art and entertainment, the, sort of the looming approach of the Chinese takeover was, is very present. Yeah, there are, like some films chose to ignore it. Other films, like On the Run, uh, with Yun Biao, showed it as like a motivating factor for the criminals because they wanted to get the heck out of Hong Kong before China took over. So it's just a myriad of responses to it. But was the idea of one country, two systems, in place? Like, was that established long as long before the takeover? Because that beca- that kind of became a catchphrase. You know, but I only know it as a catchphrase after the fact. Was it back then? Because my understanding is there was a lot of uncertainty. Did China make those sort of guarantees long before the takeover? Was it just like end of 96? Well, we promise we will not change things. Or was it something that was part of the deal beforehand? That's, that's what I'm wondering about. Yeah. Like I use that phrase because it's like familiar and um, like... With the benefit of hindsight, we can see that it's ironic. But up until the very end, there were like tense negotiations, and Hong Kong business people formed like a collective to try and um, pressure politicians to state the case for Hong Kong's independence a lot more forcefully than they actually ended up doing. So I don't know if that idea was floated back in 1992, but again, I think this is Jackie Chan putting a positive spin on things. Yeah, I I also think Jackie Chan, as as his career moved on, he like a lot of filmmakers realized that the money for the future of Hong Kong filmmaking was not in Hong Kong but was in China, so they made that transition. I mean, Jackie Chan made it fairly early. Like 
He's like, I don't know when his first Mandarin films were, but early 2000s, maybe. Yeah, he's also like a Mando pop singer as well. So he's um, singing in Mandarin. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, but so uh, uh, changing gears a little bit, which version of the movie did you watch? Uh, I watched the definitely not the American version. I can say that it's the Fortune Star version. So, so you watched the full, the full, not the cut version, not the American version. So, no, 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 the cuts. I was surprised to see the cuts when I looked on um, Wikipedia. Yeah. So I don't know if uh, I mean I guess this is more of an American thing. Uh, I don't. Perhaps the rest of the world did not have this, but a lot of a lot of Hong Kong movies, a lot of Jackie Chan movies were released by actually Weinstein, Weinstein. I would say Weinstein, but I think it's pronounced Weinstein. Uh, by either Miramax or uh, sort of one of many Miramax's uh, subsidiaries like Dimension Doors or Dimension Films, whatever. And they were always cut. There was, they were always cut, reduced, even changed. Significant parts of the dialogue would be changed to make it more... Uh, uh, palatable for americans I, i'm not sure i don't know what some of the cuts the rationale of the cuts was just make it shorter we have a vision of what, how long this movie should be and just make it shorter there was not a lot of scrutiny to what was cut to make it shorter uh and there was also not not a lot of scrutiny to finding proper translators because translating is not easy it's not just typing it in google translating and verbatim putting it on there's a there's an art to translation and i don't think the proper people yeah, so and, understanding the culture it comes from exactly trying to find an equivalent Exactly. Yeah. So, so, so I, I think not all, it was translated cheaply, quickly, and then cut without regard. So there's long before I always say this: long before people hated Harvey Weinstein for for other reasons that are obvious now, Asian movie fans have hated Harvey Weinstein for butchering Jackie Chan movies in early DVD releases. And Wong Kar Wai is the Grand Master. What, well, because he produced it. No, the uh, Miramax version is just uh, chopped and changed. Oh, so, okay, uh, but that's more recent. I'm talking about I'm, I'm talking about here the '90s and early 2000s. Oh, there's also that tale of um, what was it? Uh, Miyazaki and Studio Ghibli, I think. But that was Disney, though. Yeah, like, but that, that's a great uh, example. Of, like Americans changing something, and like the artist actually putting his foot down, or the leader of the artist. Oh, that's true. Uh, the, the only thing, at least, Disney put effort into translating the films properly, and put a lot of resources into translating films properly. So they felt entitled to make a few cuts here and there. Uh, but. Yeah. Why the Weinstein's completely butchered these Hong Kong films, and and there was, they deserve some credit for actually bringing like not just Asian movies, but a lot of that. That's how they started from bringing indie and unknown films into the U.S. Films that were considered unmarketable by other companies, yeah, and bringing them to us. So they deserve credit for that, of course. Uh, they especially in the home media market, which is which boomed in the late '80s and '90s, but they completely butchered a lot of these films, especially the Asian films, because they perhaps correctly realized that people cared about the action, not everything else. So they cut them, leaving as much of the action in and <laughs> cutting around all the other parts. Uh, but yeah, so, so I, I mean, the, the worst thing is, it's actually really hard, even now, to get the, uh, the subtitle version, like most online sellers, for a lot of Jackie Chan films and a lot of Hong Kong films. It is hard to get... Uh, to get the to get anything but the dub uh, Miramax version, 
and you have to go to specialty like Eureka or 8080 Films and etc. to get to get the other version. Fortunately, I was able to find uh, uh, the correct version in uh, in the Criterion channel, uh, so I was able to watch that. I was also able to. They also have the the dub version, and for I don't understand what the what the decision was, but the dub version ends with Kung Fu the Kung Fu fighting song. Because what song? What song represents martial arts better? Yeah, it's so stupid. I don't <laughs> such a stupid decision. But uh, uh, there was there was almost ten minutes cut from the uh, from the from the, in that version. Not not the worst case. Uh, those early scenes where they're discussing in the in the uh, in the uh, what you call it in the that, briefing. The briefing. Some of the subterfuge that is played on Jackie Chan to get it to convince him to join the case or something. Yeah, I, I found it was a tight film without the cuts anyway. Oh, yeah, it was, absolutely. Like most Jackie Chan films. I mean, that's Jackie Chan likes to operate that way anyway. Yeah. Uh, okay, uh, so there's that. So I'm glad you were able to get the, uh, the correct the, version. The correct version, although perhaps that's not as much of a problem in the UK as it is in the US. But in the US, it is indeed hard to actually even get some of these... Uh, uh, some of these uh, correct versions because the, the incorrect version is so so widely distributed and has been had been the only version for a long time until like again the, the specialty markets that like Eureka like uh, uh, 88 films like what are the other ones Arrow that kind of specialize in bringing the correct versions to uh, to the US and the Criterion collection of course is, is a big one as well it has to be pointed out that Eureka did release Supercop uh, in 2022. Yeah, and I actually would have loved that because the commentaries and some of the interviews and some of the uh, deleted scenes, which was I read amounted to like over 50 minutes. I would have loved to get my hands on that, but it was just... I'm, I'm not a physical media collector, and just getting <laughs> getting the DVD is just not... It, it is not worth it for me. Yeah, it's... Uh... Comes there comes a point when you've got physical media, you've run out of space. <laughs> like I'm a big Kyoshi Kurosawa fan. I've got all of his films released in the US, and like the occasional one or two released in the UK. And I have not opened those DVD cases in a long time, actually. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm the same. It's just I have a I have maybe three or four Blu-rays that I I was just kind of got a somehow amassed uh, over these. I have I have the one thing that I wanted to get, and I, I do have, is the Monty Python did a show recent, well, recently. This was 2015, 2016. They did that live theater show. Uh, he's not the Messiah. He's a naughty boy, is it? I don't remember what the... No, that was... Uh, there, there were a few that they did, but the most recent one was... Uh, uh, I don't remember, but it was before before the one uh, one more member died. Uh, um, oh, I'm forgetting their names now. Jones. Yeah, uh, Jones. Terry Jones. Terry Jones. He died recently. So that was before that, before, before he even had dementia. Uh, so it was uh, their live show. It was mostly a retelling of a lot of their old jokes, but some new stuff. And I have a Blu-ray of that. Yeah. Uh, because there was no other way to get it, of course. But otherwise, yeah, I'm not, I'm not really a collector of physical media. So I, I'm at the point where a lot of my DVDs are in boxes, and I'm like, thinking about how to construct a shelf so I can put them all on display. Yeah. But yeah, I haven't I haven't actually uh opened any DVDs apart from for Heroic Purgatory uh, in a long time. Yeah. And also uh, 
and we're veering off the topic here, but uh, I want to say that it's also like digital streaming has spoiled me with uh, with anything below HD quality. So it's yeah, hard for a- me to even consider watching a DVD anymore, unless unless there's no other way to get a film. And there's also an amazing amount of content on Netflix and Amazon Prime as well. So it's kind of like, it's just much more convenient for as long as they're still available online. And there's the one thing that I, uh, that I, uh, I mean, this is an interesting discussion and it is relevant to Supercop, but we did, I just mentioned how, what an awesome feature, what an awesome collection of features these, uh, um, uh, the Blu-ray for, for, from Eureka have for Supercop, you know, like, Tons of uh, extra interviews and and television promos and and even essays. Some of the Criterion ones have, uh, yeah, and uh, extra and, and those are just not brought over into streaming services. I think the Criterion cha- channel does a decent job, but it's still not complete. Like that's that's what I'm, that's what I think it's missing from the from like the to, from the DVD for especially for cinephiles and you know, researchers and histor- film historians and anybody who's interested. It's just, you don't get that streaming. And I think it's a shame. Yeah, that's the USP of like boutique labels like Eureka and Food Windows Films. And there are some um, websites like the Saka uh, streaming service uh, dedicated to Japanese indie films, which do attempt to bring directors commentaries and um, interviews and featurettes but again, it's kind of like one of those lost things where you've got the convenience of watching a film on streaming, but you can't access anything else. You just get the movie itself. Yeah. And actually, uh, a lot of people, uh, well, Criterion, Criterion does attempt that, but I also feel like they intentionally leave out stuff because other, there's, also, there's also have an interest in, in selling DVD, their DVDs and Blu-rays of the films they release. Yeah. Uh, that I mean, that arm of their business is important, so it's not in their interest to include everything in the streaming service for you know, ten bucks a month or whatever. Yeah. Uh, although now that I, I mean, I will talk about this in the media consumed later, but I, I was able, I, I had to get it for this, and so I've been watching some of their uh, movies. I mean, it's a good, it's a good streaming service to have, actually, if you're a cinephile. Absolutely. I like some of the titles I seek on there. I'm kind of jealous that I don't actually have the access to it. Yeah. Uh, okay, so so we did mention this in the in our introduction to this movie, but what do you think are some of the like the main differences of Police Story One and Two compared to Supercop? Well, again, it's uh, a lot more comedy, Buster Keaton esque um, uh, stuff with props and uh, bouncing off the sets, and uh, just Jackie Chan mugging for the camera and playing up his character. Rather, he's wait, a- wait, which one has more in your opinion? Police Story One, like like two. I always think of two as the grimmer of the trilogy because you have a nasty set of villains. Two feels like it's a movie composed of deleted scenes from one. Yeah, it's it's kind of like a like the story again is cliched. He's off the force, he's back on the force. But the thing that really struck me about two is like the mad bombers are absolutely horrible guys, and like they inflict real pain on the characters. You can see in the outtakes that Maggie Chung gets hit on the head by some of the props when um, a stunt goes wrong. And uh, yeah, that sort of grimness and nastiness to the film has always stuck with me. So like Supercop was a, a nice return to a bit of lighter comedy. Okay, yeah, I, I agree. I think, I think that I don't think it's as good. I don't think the plot is as good, but there was an attempt from Jackie Chan, perhaps motivated or aided by... Uh, Michel Yeoh being as a bouncing board for his jokes in a lot of the time. 
And she's good at delivering physical comedy as well as um, the verbal comedy, like the moment when they um, jump into the ammo dump through the window. Jackie Chan goes first, but he knocks uh, like uh, the the like a stick holding the uh, the shutter open, and um, Michelle Yeoh goes to jump through the window. She bounces off the shutter like this great moment of comedy. Uh, the moment where she's like wearing, uh, she thinks she's wearing a, a vest packed full of dynamite, and she's like, uh, "Like it's full of dynamite, I can't get shot." And Jackie Chan responds, "Like neither can I." Just- yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. The uh, like you mentioned, I think the scene where the 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 fight between the Chinese balloon spin and Jackie Chan, I thought that was pretty funny. There's a like uh, uh, there's a lot of comedy there. Uh, the 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 regular dressing as his grandmother. That's also a funny scene. Uh, I liked I liked I wrote this down. The the, the one I I tend to re- I go back whenever I can find them. Read old reviews, and this is a contemporary review from uh, the New York Times, and they summed it up. They summed it up as dumb but delightful, and I, I would agree wholeheartedly with that. I I I don't know. I find it kind of condescending because like it's. It's not like a film trying to be uh, uh, like Terrence Malick or anything like that. It's a really precision-tooled, well-made film. With the rest of the review, I'm, I'm, I'm agreeing with that brilliant. statement alone. Yeah. I think that statement captures the movie. The rest of the review, it is condescending. And like I said, it's not, it's not meant to be Terrence Malick, but even if we compare it with some of Jackie's other films, it doesn't quite... Uh, the the film as a whole it doesn't quite reaches the same levels even if the action perhaps does and even surpasses them in in some some ways yeah uh but i do i i think the the phrase dumb by delightful i i i i at least in my opinion it captured my sentiments of the film where i thought a lot of the plot elements were dumb but you don't watch it for the plot elements nevertheless I, I do appreciate it, especially in the 80s stuff, when Jackie does put that extra effort into making the, the comedy and the plot work better, even though it's never the emphasis. Yeah, this like I, the plot, I, it's just the stuff, uh, it's just a skeleton to hang like a series of increasingly audacious stunts on. But it is important. The skeleton is nevertheless important. It's not perhaps the, the part that you care of. It's not the flesh, but it's still it's, necessary. It's, here it's solid and it gets you from point A to point B with little fuss. Sure, yeah. Uh, okay, so what what else can we say about the movie that we we haven't said it? Oh, did you did you feel disappointed that there wasn't a Jackie Chang song anywhere in this movie? Like Police uh, Story One has an amazing <laughs> song that that uh, ends the film, but I don't remember what Police Story Two, but a lot of Jackie Chan movies have, but this one didn't. Yeah. Um. Beast Story One has a really great song. Um, I wasn't disappointed that uh, I didn't get a Jackie Chan song. No, uh, Project A has really, one as well. Yeah, I was really uh, impressed by like foreshadowing in this film. It's like Chai Bat holds Chan and Yang, or his henchmen hold them up like gunpoint on their first meeting, and it turns out the gun is empty, and that uh, occurs again when Yang's got the explosive vest, but that's also mostly empty. It was like an empty threat. And the photographs that Chan gets, uh, oh, the photograph take the photographs taken of Chan at the Chinese mi- uh, military police academy comes into play later when the cover's almost about to be blown. I like, I really like that interplay between like the comedy and um, like the seriousness of going undercover and having uh, like the bad guys kind of find out like they're actually cops. I felt the film balanced that really well. I did not like it so much. Uh, well. <sighs> I didn't dislike it. It's just there were 
and I think this is what you alluded to, is there are a lot of long stretches of the film where there's absolutely nothing funny happening. It's just 100% action or 100%, you know, like uh, when, uh, you know, some of the scenes with the bad guys or, or, uh, or escaping from the, the mob that chases them, etc. There are some longer stretches than I wanted without absolutely, without any comedy happening. And I don't think, and then, then jumped straight to a comedy scene. And I think the transition between comedy and on comedy, for lack of a better term to describe it, did not feel so smooth. Like, uh, what's his name? Stephen Chow does that very well, where he has scenes that have comedy and on comedy, and he's a master of making those transitions. Whereas I feel like Jackie Chan or Stanley Tong, I don't know who's more responsible for this, doesn't quite reach that balance as well. I felt like either stick with comedy or figure out how to do these transitions better. I thought the comedy really emerged well. Like the scenes where Durian Fruits used as a weapon or Jackie Chan lands into a pile of them. The, yeah, the shootout in the Golden Triangle where like Michelle Yeoh's character, Yang, like she's strapped with a vest and she's blasting bad guys and she's like, uh, hold me and she drops down on Jackie and like he's holding her um, uh, by her chest and she's like, uh, let go of me and then he lets go of her and like it plays into that gender comedy and it emerges naturally from the action. So I thought it gelled pretty well. Oh yeah, the co- like I said, the comedy in itself, in isolation, is pretty good. I'm, I'm talking about when there is comedy and drama combined, where, like I said, there are stretches of, of, of the film where there is no comedy at all, and then it, it, it feels like an abrupt transition to when it goes to a scene that there is comedy. Yeah, I, I thought it was smooth enough. Uh, well, I, I mean, that's, that's fine. I, I didn't. It didn't, but it's, it could be just be my sensibilities yeah. that, didn't, that didn't quite match with what the film provided me. Um, uh, but anyway, what what else can we say about the film that we haven't said already? So yeah, Maggie Chung uh, in this film, like uh, again, damsel in distress. I you suppose. almost forget that she's there, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, she's a lot more important in the first film, and she has a better role in the first film. But but she's there. I mean, she has one important scene, uh, like somewhere in the middle of the film, and that's it, right? Yes, yeah, so she's the one that ultimately blows their cover, and uh, she gets. She's captured and then unceremoniously dumped onto the hood of a car, onto the bonnet of a car. Yeah, well, she from is, a helicopter. She does save the day eventually once she realizes what's happening. Uh, yeah, but again, this is, seems seems to me uh, that's another missed opportunity for. There are no consequences for Jackie. We never find out what happens to their relationship. I I don't remember Police Story Four at all, which is titled Crime Story, but I think it's it's a it's a reboot. It's not a continuation. So I haven't watched that, but I think um, Stanley Tong directed it, right? I am almost a ninety percent sure that I've seen it. I just don't really remember. It came came out after this, and I think it's a uh, it's where he's. Uh, this is more like he's more of a James Bond character in this in this movie. Oh right, looking at the description, he goes to Russia and um, he's yeah, working with the, the CIA. One- there's a famous scene where they're inside and there's water flooding in. Yeah. But yeah, of course, this is, again, another movie with, uh, with uh, a huge budget and huge production values that he's kind of like he's known for in the 90s. Yeah. Um, all right, so uh, what else? Yeah, villains. Uh, like, uh, what did you think of the villains? A very typical, nothing... The first villain, which was for some reason looks like it will be the main villain, which is the one that Jackie Chan frees from prison. Yeah. Uh, 
he's an interesting villain for for a few minutes, and then of course he gets supplanted by another villain who is uh, somewhat of an inconsistent villain. Chaibats, like cackling, heinous, evil, comically evil. Comically evil, yes. Uh, the entire, you know, uh, breakdown of communication at the... Was it Tai? That, uh, the yes, main yes. Prime In the Golden Triangle. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the breakdown was felt like, you know, from the perspective of someone who's never been part of any kind of negotiations whatsoever. <laughs> Also, and used to settling negotiations. Yeah, but but again, it was like many Jack and was it was an excuse for that action set piece, that action scene, and th- those explosions. Yeah, which I also think it's maybe like a first for Jackie. He's like you know, like okay, by this time he was a seasoned stuntman and and actor. I don't think th- there were many explosions in his previous films. I think this is the first film where explosions are employed so liberally. Not as much gunplay because he's blasting people with machine guns. Is this something out of like dreaming the reality or um, Iron Angels? They, they they also make it a point for Jackie to never actually kill anyone. I don't know if you noticed that. A lot of these scenes, a lot of people die, but he never actually kills anyone. As a police officer, he should try avoiding that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, whereas, uh, I mean, people are, well, I, I don't know the distinction because people are dying left and right, especially in that scenes, in terrible ways, but... I don't think there's any instance where we actually see Jackie kill anyone directly. There are people that die as a result of Jackie's actions, but it's very indirect. Yeah. But it's like typical sort of action movie scenes where just like um, you see a lead actor blasting a gun and then it cuts to all the amazing explosions and people being thrown around. And yeah, it's, it's not extreme or excessive. It's just typical for that day and age, it feels. But it's different for Jackie Chan's character because you don't see him uh, blast guns like that in the other police story movies. It's mostly martial arts. I think it's Jackie's, which again, as it seems somewhat contradictory to what he wants from his career because he's been always, especially recently, he wants more serious, dramatic roles. But at the same time, he's always been very adamant about cultivating a certain persona in, in his movies. Yeah, a certain goodness that... Yeah, never show blood, never show guns, Uh, which I don't think it was, you know, like a lot of his earlier movies, like especially 70s and early 80s. I mean, there's definitely more violence, uh, but perhaps for international, uh, once they realized that an international market was a serious source of profit, they said, let's try to be the least offensive that we could be. Let's amp up the action and let's go to these different um, countries to film. Yeah, absolutely. Of course, which is natural with higher budgets, which they had. I mean, there was a point throughout this time that he was the, like, voted as the most recognizable movie star in the world. But he had massive followings in uh, across Asia, and he would work with different actors. The from, entire world, not just Asia. But especially at this point, um, in the, in the early nineties, where he's just about to break out really big with international hits. Absolutely. Uh, okay. All right. Anything, anything else? I guess, uh, I, suppose, uh, I suppose, this would be a really good film to introduce people to Hong Kong cinema, to Asian cinema. I think so. I mean, I, I still think Police Story is a better film, and I think very accessible as well, but this was not a, would not be a bad one, for sure. I think it, it shows you like a movement within Hong Kong cinema 
um, to uh, like the the cop genre and the um, tough uh, female cop, and you've also got like working in different locations and with a with an actor from Malaysia, so that tells you about different territories this is appealing to. And you also see um, Jackie Chan in his career just before he goes really global. Yeah. I mean, here's my problem is like why we are familiar with Jackie Chan's other movies, especially earlier movies. I mean, in a world where, you know, like in, in the Western world 10 or 15 years ago, where this one was the first exposure to a lot of people's Jackie Chan, I would say, sure. But there's just something, there's a certain charm that is missing from this one that I just appreciate so much more. From his again, like a first police story, like Project A, like uh, uh, Dragon Lords, etc. That I, I just, to me, feels like feels like this feels to me like a, a the Hollywood film, the mainstream film of Hong Kong cinema, whereas the other ones were like sort of like independent films, which is not true. They were not, but it feels like that. I can see that. Yeah, the first two are like rough and ready, and there's a lot more uh, comedy to them and the stuff that. People really love about Jackie Chan, whereas this one it's a bit bit blander. It's a, it's a lot more, yeah, it's a lot more action packed. Certainly, yeah, it's certainly better production values. Even I mean, you can even say the quality of the action from a filmmaking point of view, it is better, but it doesn't have that it factor, for lack of a yeah. better term. Yeah, uh, I agree. Okay, okay. So with that note, we can perhaps end our discussion. With uh, regard to to police story uh, to police story to yeah police story three uh, super cup aka the cup that can't be stopped. Great tagline. A great tagline, absolutely. That I love. It just rolls off the tongue so well. <laughs> yeah. But now that the discussion is done, we can jump into our news section. So, Jason, do you have any news for us? So yeah, the Cannes Film Festival is underway, and uh, early re- there are early reports on a number of films. Screen Daily are uh, collating their uh, reviews and um, like score review scores of each of the films. And like um, Hirokazu Koreeda's Monster um, initially came out the gate pretty strong, got mostly good reviews. Uh, sort of, um, we've discovered more about the plot. It's a, a Rashomon type of story where we get uh, different perspectives on a crime, but it's also talking about the insularity of a community. Um, some critics have pointed out its similarities to a Belgian film called Close, similar themes and like setting and two teenage boys in a small community. Um, so yeah, um, looking forward to finding out more about that. Um, I've heard mixed things about some of the Korean films that have played at the festival. Um, so I'm sure we'll talk more about this after the awards are announced at the end of the festival. I don't know if you saw it on Twitter, but there was a bit of controversy about can standing ovations. Uh, like timing like six minutes for Killers of the Flower Moon and so forth. Yeah, so there was one film, I forget which one, that got five minutes and was uh, labeled by critics as a failure. There was a, a essentially, there's, I forget who it was on Twitter. I think it was someone that we both follow, but uh, anyway, it doesn't matter. It posted a, a newspaper article that one film was a disappointed and it only got five minutes standard ovation, and the other film was a success and it only got six minutes of standing ovation. And this guy said, apparently, the difference between disappointed and successful is a minute. Uh, <laughs> and then there has been a lot of uh, explanations and people posting about 
can standing ovations and how they can sometimes be meaningless. Uh, but including including the longest stand ovation, which is apparently Pan's Labyrinth for 22 minutes. And I'm thinking about that. That, that is insane. <laughs> I can't imagine copying for 22 that, minutes. Do you realize 20 minute, 22 minutes is an episode of a comedy on TV? That's how hey guys, com- I've got stuff to do. <laughs> like put a, put an episode of Family Guy and clap, stand up and clap for 22 minutes for like the entire duration of an episode of Family Guy or or The oh, Office it- or whatever. That- this is this is a film festival, but we've got more screenings to get to. <laughs> exactly, no film. I can guarantee this. No film, no director cares requires you for their film, no matter how much effort they put. For you to stand up and clap twenty-two minutes for the film, and even even ten minutes, which is more normal, or like five of eight minutes standing ovation, seems to me excessive. Well, what, your hands will bleed at that time. And you're the director, and you have to stand there awkwardly as the cameras are moving around you, watching your reactions. It's kind of, you have to but, draw them. But in. there's a lot of explanation saying that a lot of it is theatrical. It's almost like a necessity. Like the cameras are constantly watching you, so you kind of have to do it. Which to me is, I, I would not do it. I would not do that, it. I would just, I would be the only guy in the stand standing and just waiting, like sitting and waiting for it to be over. I, w- I would just slip out. <laughs> but this is why I work festivals uh, uh, as opposed to um, <laughs> attending them um, uh, as a star or anything like that. Do um, you get, do you see this in the festivals that you have worked in? Uh, occasionally, but not that long, maybe a minute or two. But uh, yeah, it's like theatricality is definitely a thing of cans because you hear about people booing and um, jeering during screenings. So it's kind of like it's the height of rudeness, but also it's like the event encourages that, I suppose. Yeah. Also, is is there somebody timing this that they said, oh, we really like this, so we better clap more than the previous film, which we only liked for like eight minutes. We better get nine or more minutes on this one. Like this director's in fashion. Makes no sense whatsoever. But... It was, I don't know, I just found the discussion fascinating. I don't tend to follow, like, these kind of arguments on Twitter, but it somehow caught my eye, and I keep seeing more and more tweets about it. I, yeah, I've seen tweets of, like, um, critics um, um, talking about how they walk out of screenings, and, like, um, somebody's talked about how Jean-Luc Godard's last film, which is a trailer for a film that doesn't exist, and only lasts, like, 20 minutes or so. And yeah. people were walking out of that. It's kind of like you can't sit down for 20 minutes to watch the last film of John Goddard. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, I, yeah, it's definitely an event that encourages sort of like off-ball yeah. behavior. And I do think the... I, I do have a high respect for the awards that are given at Cannes um, um, or Venice or even Berlin, which I follow a little less, but of course, I think there is value to whoever wins those awards. But as film festival, which led like a film festival has a purpose, right? The original purpose of a festival is to sort of like celebrate and discover films. As yes. film festivals, these festivals have kind of lost that purpose. They're not, if you want to discover new films, if you want to, if you want to enjoy movies, I don't think the Cannes Film Festival is a festival for anybody to follow. It's, you know, like uh, the bigger names only go there. Yeah, we've got Ken Loach, Wim Wenders, um, all the European masters, and we've got like when it comes to uh, Asian filmmakers, you often see Hirokazu Koreeda invited, and it's kind of like it's screaming out for new talents, especially female talents. And I think they're making more of an effort. There are more female filmmakers, but again, these are uh, names that you're familiar with, like Jessica Hausner. Exactly. I've had 
since we started doing festivals in this podcast and for Sims, I've had so much more fun following these quote unquote smaller festivals. Yeah. Then in all my, you know, like I want to say 15 years of following the Cannes Festival. First of all, because it's impossible to follow the Cannes Festival in real time. You have to wait for the films to be released. At least for someone like me, of course. You have to wait for the film to be released more widely so you can finally get, get a chance to watch it. That's a big annoying factor for like the average cinephile. Uh, but also, it's just there's just more joy in discovering films from independent creators of actually, you know, better curation. I mean, there's no curation in Cannes whatsoever. It's entirely about you know, the quality of the film or the filmmaker. And sometimes it's just the reputation of the filmmaker. Nothing to do with the quality. I mean, well, there are terrible well, films that everyone in Cannes. We know that. Cannes is about the Cannes Film Festival ultimately, like, trying to uphold its reputation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, but anyway, we, we've said enough about that. What's, what else is in the news? Hey, like organizers of the Cannes Film Festival, if you want to invite us, we're happy to change our opinions. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm, I'll happily come. I'm not going to change my opinion, but I'll happily. We'll, uh, we'll have Siskel and Ebert's um, arguments on the beaches of uh, Cannes. Yeah, I'll happily bash you in person, as opposed to over <laughs> a, a relatively small uh, and niche podcast. But <laughs> of course, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say no to that. Although I don't think Cannes pays for sorry, just because <laughs> you know you got me going. I don't think Cannes pays for journalists. I think it's. Like the journalists have no, to pay for themselves. Have to pay for can, yeah. Exactly. It's like, of course, the institution that journalists work for pays for them, but I don't think can does anything like that. Again, once you reach the heights of Can Film Festival, you can command whatever prices you want. Yeah. So yeah, in terms of other film festivals, specialist film festival, we have Nippon Connection um, running June sixth to eleventh, and it's an in-person event. We've got 100 short and feature-length films from Japan, 60 workshops, concerts, lectures, an exhibition, and market booths. In terms of the films, um, you've got uh, uh, some we've talked about already, like Lesson in Murder and 75, and uh, the Anshul Chauhan film December, and also Drive My Car. Wow, surprised it's still making festivals. It's, it's uh, almost two years I know, now. I know we disagreed on this, but it's a high quality title. So. Well, we, we got, it's not. I mean, that's not even my argument. It's 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 an old film at this point. It's two years. That's what I'm saying. But I'm not. I don't disagree that it's a quality title. It's just the uh, the uh, the the uh, Nippon. Um, I think it's Nippon Star Award goes to Toko Miura, and she's the driver in Drive My Car. So her films are being played at the festival. That's one of them. Oh, I, I see, I see. Okay, sorry, I did not make that clear. So, yeah. Uh, in terms of, like, newer films, uh, we've got Kochira Amiko, which was at the Rotterdam International Film Festival, from what I've heard from critics. That's a really uh, impressive film about uh, a little uh, girl's uh, fishing community. Um, parents are in a very rocky relationship, and um, she's interacting with people in this community, and she has a very sparky, feisty character. It's about her interactions with various people. Uh, we've also got Okiko and the World, um, which is a film by Junji Sakamoto, veteran director. It's black and white and set in the Edo period, so it's a period piece. And it's about a fallen samurai's daughter, two working class guys. Well, I guess she's working class now that she's um, like fallen from a position of grace. Uh, fall in love with her and um, she suffers 
uh, an accident uh, where she loses her voice. And um, yeah, I've read good reviews for that. And we've also got My Small Land, which is about um, people applying for refugee um, status in Japan and the struggles they go through when um, that status is denied. So those are some of the highlights of Nippon Connection. All right. All right. So uh, I think that's it for our news section. So why don't we go into our cultural consumption section as, uh, as uh, before we end this episode? So what have you been doing, Jason, since last time we spoke? So uh, after you mentioned um, the Madame Bovary Eisenstein uh, essays, actually uh, found PDF uh, just by Googling it. I've downloaded the PDF, but I stopped reading Madame Bovary because I'm spending a lot of time playing The Legend of Heroes, Trails in the Sky. And uh, I'm kind of enjoying the game. It reminds me a lot of Star Ocean due to the setting and like uh, it's a mixture of uh, like um, medieval worlds and um, airships and like crystals and um, sci-fi technology. Uh, like the combat system is uh, based on like uh, different elements, rock, paper, scissors mechanic. Um, but the best thing about it is writing, which is funny because it often mirrors what I'm thinking as a player. Because characters, the main characters will point at irritating things of a fetch quest or complain about meeting rude people on their journeys. And uh, yeah, I just find it a very pleasant game to play. And I've uh, about put about 40 hours into it. Um, I've got the next two games in the franchise, but they're the Japanese editions. So I don't know if I'll be playing those anytime soon because I need to practice Japanese more. In terms of films, um, I watched the Hong Kong crime thriller Detective vs. Sleuths. And... Um, yeah, uh, I watched some Kyoshi Kurosawa films recently, and um, that's about it, really. Uh, super cop for this podcast. How about your cultural consumption? All right, so uh, like just like last time, it involves a lot of games, uh, some new games, some old games. One of them is, of course, Persona 3. I've, I've been continuing uh, playing that in, in, in a relatively slow pace, but I'm making progress. Pretty well. I, I mean, I'm enjoying it. I'm still, I'm still not a hundred percent sure. I'm not. I don't think I'm quite at the point where I find out what's going. I think I, I beat the second boss, and I've got to the, to the point. Uh, I've got past that point, and I, I think I, I think I've reached the maximum of the second, of the next dungeon, and now I'm just waiting for the days to pass while doing social things. Yeah. Uh, I after last time I talked about how much I enjoyed Hollow Knight. Hollow Knight. Uh, yes, so the I, world of the bugs. So, yeah, so I I've been kind of I've been looking for more similar games where there's like a platforming Metroidvania uh, style of game. So I've kind of been exploring a lot of other games on the Steam Deck. And like, like the good thing is that these games tend to be relatively cheap, uh, while also being very fast. So I, another game that I played is Celeste, mm-hmm. a very similar game. It's another two D platformer. Uh, where you have this character that needs to get to the top of a mountain. Uh, it doesn't involve any fighting, but it is a, is a, a very challenging platformer. Uh, I've played uh, Hades, which is not a 2D platform, but it's sort of like this isometric 3D vision where you play the son of Hades trying to escape the underworld. And it has an interesting mechanic where you have to complete the game in one run but every so every time you die, you restart at the beginning, but you retain some of the abilities that you've gained over time and some of the items that you gain at the time that you can use to buy stuff and upgrade. So it's sort of like a 
you replay the same thing over and over again, but you are a little bit stronger over time. And of course, there's a random, the dungeons are generated randomly, so it doesn't feel the same, although the path that you have to take is the same. Yeah. Uh, so it's an interesting game. And then another similar game that I played is Astal on Tears of the Earth, which is a very reminiscent of like the Super Nintendo era type of games where you have uh, this pixel 2D, similar to Hollow Knight, where you have this pixel 2D, a very Japanese inspired uh, 2D platformer, but there's also fighting involved. And you have to essentially save your village from a, a plague that's been, uh, that's been killing them or something like that. I'm not 100% clear what's happening yet. I hate it when I have to do that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that's that's in terms of video games. I I said that I got uh, a criterion the Criterion Channel to watch uh, to watch Supercop, and since I had it, I've been watching some movies there. So it's a bunch of other Michelle Yeoh movies that I was able to 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 watch, uh, like uh, Royal Warriors, like the Heroic Trio, like uh, Madam Yes, Madam. Uh, I watched Branded to Kill. Oh, or the rewatch branded to kill the elephant man. That's always a movie that I enjoy. I don't think it's a great movie. I think there's a, it's perhaps too melodramatic for my taste. That one always makes me cry. Yeah, uh, that's right. Yeah, and it's so emotionally manipulative. I think, but it does it does affect me. And lastly, I've also been kind of occasionally in my free time watching the Castle TV show. Castle. Oh, the detective one. The detective. The and crime the, writer. The crime yeah. writer and the detective one. It's a very. Typical me two thousands drama comedy show uh, with a snarky uh, detective Fillion. and the serious, I mean the snarky writer and the serious detective woman. Yeah, it's okay. Nathan I wouldn't. Fillion from Firefly. Yeah, Nathan Fillion from Firefly. Yeah, I don't. I mean, it's okay. I don't. I'm not in love with it, but it's it's something to put in and just kind of when you're tired, a few like a couple of episodes before I go to sleep, it kind of helps. It it's it's good enough for that purpose. <laughs> Soporific. Exactly. Uh, oh, but that's it regarding my cultural consumption. Cool. Uh, all right. So I think that's it for uh, our first episode of season uh, four of Heroic Purgatory, an Asian cinema podcast. Uh, we hope you enjoyed our discussion of uh, Supercop starring uh, Jackie Chan and Michelle Yeoh. For next week, we'll uh, be covering another pair of Hong Kong movies. Uh, also starring Michelle Yeoh. The first one is Yes, Madam from 1985, sorry. And the one is Royal Warriors from 1986. And we, I know we don't usually do two episodes in a row from the same country. This is sort of an exception because we feel like we can. there's more Michelle Yeoh that we can discuss. Hopefully this will not happen very often, but I think it's okay. So that's it for next week. We'll Again, we'll be talking about Yes, Madam and Royal Warriors, a double feature starring Michelle Yeoh. So Jason, anything to say before we close the episode? Yeah, it's uh, always fun uh, revisiting old films, like especially the girls' gun genre. And uh, I hope uh, anybody who's watched these films would like to comment, you know, let us know on the website or via Twitter. And uh, yeah, we'd be happy to respond. And uh, if you're still listening at this point, thank you very much. Absolutely. Uh, so yeah, like you said, if you have any comments, questions, suggestions, concerns, let us know on Twitter at Heroic Purgatory, all in one word. Or you can also comment uh, on our website, heroic-purgatory.com. Otherwise, we'll see you next time.
这世界运迷雾障，去试试我志向，我有我主张，对将风暴挥出每滴能量。I'm not afraid.